that's a good video, but before you all get in the habit of standing, I'd like to ask all the veterans to stand. And let's applaud them. Anybody who's a veteran. generation that didn't have to fight, let me say thank you for many of us for fighting so that so many others didn't have to. We want to pray over you. Father God, thank you for the men and women in this congregation who gave up years of their lives to serve you with honor, to serve us with honor, to serve our country with honor. And we pray that you will continue to, to preserve the values that make our country free to make this country work, and that honor you. And we ask that you bless all of these folks. And uh, today, may we have the opportunity as we share coffee afterwards to tell the stories and to thank people individually. Guide us as we continue on in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, anyone want, want to guess what the tie-in between that video for Veterans Day, that inspiring video for Veterans Day, and the process that we're in as a church, you have an idea what the tie-in would be? You don't have to guess. I'll provide it for you. Just as the uh, person who was speaking at the beginning of the video was making the point that it's important to pass on those values to those who come later. We are always in the same process as a church of needing to pass on our values and our beliefs to those who come after us. So it has always been one of the main purposes of the church to figure out how do we not just live out our faith and hold on to our beliefs, but how do we hand them off to the next generation like a big baton race? And till the day that this church ceases to operate, that will always be one of the challenges, no matter who the pastor is, no matter who the leadership is, to keep passing on our faith to the next generation. Does that make sense? That's where we're headed. Let me grab my notes over here. We're going to read a few verses from one of the smallest books in the New Testament, and it's the little letter of 2 John. It's called 2 John because it's the second of the epistles or the letters that John wrote that come at the back end of the New Testament. So I'm going to ask that you would read this with me. This is 2 John. There's no chapter division there because there's only one chapter, so we just list the verses. 2 John 4 through 9. Let's do this together. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. God, we ask that you would grant us wisdom as we look into your word, grant us understanding and insight. 
and give us the faith and the knowledge and the courage to hold dear to the same things that the apostles of Jesus taught and lived by so that our faith will carry on from what they have started, so that our faith will have the same kind of legacy that theirs has had. Lord, we ask that you would continue to walk with uh, those who are facing challenging times during this week. I think of uh, the Hayden and Langloy families from yesterday's memorial as uh, the sudden loss of Jeanette hit hard. We thank you for that celebration. We thank you for walking with the Lindquist family as well, and we ask that you will continue to heal and console. And Lord, we ask that you will continue to grant courage and hope and perspective to those, who are, those of us who go on in life and who dare to live for you. Lord, we pray for anybody in our congregation who may either be new to faith or just checking things out, and we, we pray that uh, you will allow them to keep discovering your truth and to discover Jesus, the same Jesus who walked this earth, the same Jesus who knew the apostle who wrote this letter, the same Jesus who continues to influence us and guide us and indwell his people today. And so we pray in his mighty name. Amen. The eminent theologian of the 1960s, John Lennon, uh, wrote these well-known words. All you need is love. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. You've heard those words, right? Sometimes knowing the background helps us understand a bit more about a song. On May 18, 1967, the Beatles signed a contract to appear on an international live television show called Our World. And the Beatles were invited to represent Great Britain in, in particular on this show. And they were also asked if they would come up with a song that had a message so clear that it would be immediately understood by everybody who would watch this show around the world. Taking that assignment seriously, they chose All You Need Is Love. More than just a song, for them, All You Need Is Love was a statement. Now, the brilliance of that particular song is that the message is incredibly clear. Would you agree with that? Man, I, I, I do. It, it, it's, it's rather simple. It's not complicated. But then... As that song was released in 1967, the controversy began. It was released during the summer, during the height of the Vietnam War, and the rise of student radicals who were protesting the war. All You Need Is Love infuriated many of the hardcore protesters who felt that the Beatles ought to be making more of a statement, not just somehow being pacifistic, but they ought to be making a political statement that would reflect what was going on on a number of the campuses. Music critics and some countercultural activists criticized John Lennon for this song for the rest of his life. They considered it shallow and out of touch. Lennon's defenders, in turn, argued that the critics confused his utopian vision that he was pointing toward with being shallow. And Lennon himself defended the song in a 1971 interview. This is what he said. I think if you get down to the basics, whatever the problem is, it's usually due with love, usually to do with love. So I think all you need is love is a true statement. It doesn't mean that all you have to do is put on a phony smile and it's going to be all right. Love is appreciation of other people and allowing them to be. Love is allowing someone to be themselves, and that's what we need to do, unquote. 
were the Beatles and John Lennon Wright. In most of life's arenas, love provides a very good start, a good foundation. But is love all you need in a relationship? Usually it takes more. Is love all you need in a family? Great start, important element, take that out and everything falls apart, but usually needs more information than that, more, more contact, more time, more investment. Is love all you need when you are evaluating whether to connect with a church? Love's important. It's certainly one of the features. Is love all you need when maintaining your identity as a Christian? Now, I raised these questions this morning because we're focusing on one of the shortest letters in the Bible's New Testament, officially called the second epistle or second letter of John. We often refer to this as Second John. At the outset, John, the last of the original apostles still to be walking on this earth, discussed truth and love as he wrote about his thoughts that had to do with maintaining faith in a rapidly changing and increasingly hostile environment. For the remaining Sundays in November, we're going to walk through a three-week series that I'm calling We Still Believe. And this series takes a clo close look at uh, historic concerns that the early church leaders had for the next generation of Christ followers as the era of apostle-led churches was coming to a, cl a close. They were vitally concerned with what would happen with the next generation. And John, as the last one remaining, keeps coming back to this theme in his letters. So in order to do this, we're going to look at three of what the Bible, some, or what people sometimes call the postcard letters of the New Testament. 2nd John, 3rd John, and Jude. Now, what's in common with all three of these is that they're all extremely short letters, so much so that some people have surmised you could write them on a postcard and send them to a friend. That's where that designation comes from, the postcard letters. Along with Philemon, they are the shortest books in the New Testament. And we're going to start with this look at 2nd John. So this morning's title is Acknowledging Jesus Christ Has Come. And some questions run through this passage. Two questions in particular. The first is, what is the relationship between truth and love? And the second one is, how do we maintain a robust faith in the midst of a climate of confusion and change and sometimes even hostility toward the gospel? Now, a little bit of background helps in, in this case, too, as we look at this particular letter. As we find John here writing this letter, the church as a movement was growing and spreading predominantly through house churches. It means that there weren't large church buildings that were old and, and filled with pews and had been around for hundreds of years. There were no mega churches yet. Those were a long way off. Most of the churches met in individual homes. And they were rather small, but their influence was spreading throughout the culture. Yet, the time of the apostles was ending, and only John was left from the original band of disciples who walked with Jesus. Well known to the early church, he identifies himself here as simply the elder. Using the Greek term presbyteros, from which we get the word Presbyterian, John used a term that can both refer to a title, meaning an elder who held a position in the church, or it can simply mean he was the old man. Writing in the 90s AD as the last of the original apostles, last of the original disciples of Jesus, both meanings fit 
He's the elder statesman, that last of the leaders from the church that we read about in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And he is the revered, well-loved old man of the church as it embarks on a new century. A new cadre of leaders and teachers was emerging. But without a well-developed organization to oversee them, to supervise them, or to train them, or sometimes even to rein them in, sometimes those new teachers were traveling around from city to city, and the message that they taught sounded sometimes like the gospel that the apostles had brought, and sometimes unlike the gospel that the apostles and the teachers had brought. And this is what prompted John to write this letter. So what I'd like to present to you is three challenges that John was presenting to a new generation that still fit the challenge that we face in this world today. Challenges for a new generation. Here's the first one. To hold truth and love in balance. The words you're missing there in your notes are in balance. So we pick it up in verse 4. John writes, It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. John, at the outset here, identifies his greatest joy. His joy is seeing some of the next generation walking in the truth. But I don't know if you noticed that all-important word. It says, some. So on the one hand, he's expressing great joy that there are some, perhaps the some is many, who are in this particular church group that he's writing to, who are carrying on the faith that, that he and the early disciples have been spreading. But that word some is also troublesome because it means that some are not, and he's concerned about that. He notes that God the Father has commanded us to walk in truth. And John assumes that his readers are familiar with his earlier letter in 1 John where he wrote, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. First, John tells us in this paragraph that truth matters. To walk in truth is to develop a lifestyle that is anchored in truth. It implies two things. First, that we believe the truth, and then that we obey the truths that we've come to believe or to celebrate. It really is not enough, then, for us just to know the truth, because what good is knowing if we fail to apply the truth in, ways, in the ways that we live our lives? That would just be head knowledge. It, it really wouldn't matter at all. But when truth is lived out, it's seen. It has its impact. It begins to change us. John's sage advice is that love alone is not enough because truth matters. Notice that he discusses truth before he reminds us of the command to love one another. This does not in any way diminish love or his challenge for us to love, but he's telling us that Christian love is shaped by truth. It is balanced by truth. In the first six verses of this short letter, John brings up the word truth five times. I don't know about you, but I often say if I hear something three times in the Bible, I know it's really important. If I hear something five times in a very short period of uh, portion of Scripture, I know that this is vitally important. And so five times he brings up the word truth. Then he weaves in the concept of love 
this agape love that we sometimes read about, a, a sacrificial love from outside of ourselves that God gives, he weaves in this concept five times in the same verses. Both are true. Truth comes first, and then love is right beside it. So what is the relationship between truth and love in John's teaching? Well, loving a false idea or a false concept usually leads to embarrassment or to harm. And so John doesn't want us to go in that direction. Whenever people love error or non-truth, that love becomes destructive in some way. So every totalitarian regime in history has found people who believed lies that were sown by leaders. In World War II, millions of Germans believed that they were part of a master race and that they were better than everybody else and that some other races, especially Jews, Poles, and Gypsies, were inferior people. Loving that false ideology led to genocide and to international warfare and destruction and the death of millions. So truth must be a factor for love to be genuine, for love to be real, for love to be full. It places healthy boundaries around the concept of love. Real love, healthy love, requires discernment. It is not unanchored. It is always tied to truth. And now John defines love. He says, this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. In other words, if we love God, we express more than feelings about God. We do more than sing songs of worship to God. We take his advice, we take his wisdom, we take his word, and we begin to act on it. And we begin to build it into our lives. And that's a lifelong process of learning how to do that. So a Christian who truly loves his brothers and sisters will only seek what God desires for them over time as we mature in that knowledge, as we mature in that love. In this way, our love is guided by truth and evidenced in obedience to God's desires and commands. Undirected love may drift into that which is just sun, uh, sentimental or unwise, but truth without love leads to harshness. Love without truth makes a person unsafe, but truth and love hand in hand are an unbeatable team. So in a sense, John the Elder disagrees a bit with John the Beatle. Uh, John the Beatle wrote, all you need is love. And you and I know that he, he was thinking about uh, how, to, how to convey ideas in short, pithy ways, so I don't want to pick on John Lennon too much. But a fuller discussion leads us to recognize that real love has more than that. Real love is bathed in truth, which keeps that love from being twisted or being corrupted or from being dangerous. So John's first challenge is, to hold love and truth side by side in healthy balance. Here's the second challenge that he presents for us. Don't let others redefine Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed, but in every age, it seems like somebody comes up with another new idea, a new way of spinning Jesus to it. So John writes these words in verse 7. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world, any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now John gets at the core of his concern. As the, as the apostolic era or period was coming to a close, something was beginning to change 
in the church as, as loose as it was, as rapidly expanding as it was. There were some who were bringing deceptive new teaching about Jesus into the church. So John describes it this way, deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone into the world. What does it mean for us to acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh? I'd like to suggest to you, this, there are about five different ways at least that we can uh, answer that question. First, it means that we believe in what theologians call the incarnation. That is the central idea that we celebrate at Christmas time, that the Son of God took on human life and flesh and became one of us. This is a central belief for Eastern Orthodox, for Roman Catholic, and for most Protestant Christians today. The Apostolic Church was concerned because near the end of the first century, some of these roving teachers had abandoned the belief in the Incarnation. They were called Docetists. That name comes from a Greek word that means to appear. So they taught that Jesus merely appeared to take on human flesh. That he wasn't really a man. He was really this spirit being who kind of hovered over a person and who infiltrated his life, but that Jesus wasn't really one of us. That was in direct conflict with the Gospel of John, where the same author John had written years ago, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. John's point was that the incarnation of Jesus was permanent and lasting, and that part of what makes this wonderful and miraculous was the idea that God had come down to share our life, and that forevermore he was tied to human life. Jesus was not only both God and human during his earthly ministry, Jesus continues today as fully divine and also human as he sits on the throne in heaven. Another concept from the false teachers was that the spirit of Christ merely descended on the man Jesus and left him before Jesus went to the cross. So if this was true, then Jesus didn't really die for our sins and the gospel has no power. Second, it not only means that we believe in the incarnation, but when we say that we're acknowledging that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, it also means that we acknowledge his virgin birth. Now, I know the, plaint, the complaint that comes often because I get asked this question. How can you believe something like this, Paul? How can we believe this today in our age? Virgins don't have babies, right? And generally speaking, that is absolutely true. But the angel of Gabriel adds an important concept into the, into the gospel account that is written in Luke 1.37. He says, for nothing is impossible with God. So it's absolutely correct. In the human world, left to ourselves, virgins don't have babies. And yet God enters the story and the angel, angel delivers this message that the Holy Spirit would create this child within Mary. And even though she doesn't understand how it would happen, just like you and I don't understand how this would happen, she submits herself nonetheless and says, may it be to me as, as you have said, or another translation puts it, may your word be fulfilled in me. The virgin birth was not something that the gospel writers simply made up on their own. It goes back to a promise God had delivered to Eve in the Garden of Eden just after Adam and Eve had sinned against God and he was announcing 
the curse that would fall upon them. He speaks to the evil one in the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then he speaks about one of those offspring coming from Eve. He says, he will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. And that first seed of hope is delivered. That is the first veiled reference to the plan of God, to the gospel of God, that a child would come from the line of Adam and Eve who would one day crush the head of the evil one. But in the process, that child would be bruised. Eve began to wonder. She gives her son Cain, the first one born, this name that means something like the one, thinking maybe he's the answer to this promise. But of course, we know Cain wasn't. And it would be many, many years later before Jesus arrives. And on the day that Jesus died, he allowed himself to be placed on that cross. And he died. And it looked like the evil one had won the victory. But then on that first Easter Sunday morning, by the power of God, he rose from the grave, breaking the hold of, of, of death, showing that sin had no power over him, and declaring to us that he has the authority and the ability to forgive sins and to free us for the, from them and to give us a completely new life. The virgin birth <coughs> is absolutely essential to all of that. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise that had been made. And over the years, through the scriptures, little bitty glimpses were given through the prophets of who this child would, would be, what this child would be like, what this child would accomplish. And finally, all of this was lived out in Jesus. Third, it means that we acknowledge Jesus' divine identity. Many religious thinkers claim that Jesus is just one of the great teachers of all time. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who will lead off by saying, oh, I believe in Jesus, he was a great teacher, but you know, he's up there with Buddha and Muhammad and, and they can add to the list and it just keeps going. I say, you know what? I think there is some bit of truth, some kernel of truth in all of those religious leaders and in all the religions of the world. If there wasn't a kernel of truth, they wouldn't work at all. But they don't all teach the same thing. And I'll bet that you are going to tell me next that they all pretty much say the same thing. And that's where when you look at all these faith claims side by side, that argument falls apart. Because Jesus made some very specific claims that were unlike all of the others. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be one with God. He claimed Jesus is his own Father. He claimed to be sent directly from God. He told people that he was going to die and he would be raised on the third day. Jesus was unlike any of the rest. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, turns that notion that Jesus is in the same category with all the other religious leaders on its head. He points out that it is illogical to say that Jesus was a great moral teacher, yet reject his claim to be God's son, one with God, sent from God, or to receive worship as God. Lewis points out that Jesus was either the one-of-a-kind, unique son of God, and therefore the Lord to be worshipped. Or he had to be a liar, or a lunatic, or a madman to make such claims. Fourth, when we say that we acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh, it means acknowledging Jesus' human identity 
along with his divinity. Jesus wasn't only the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, and the Lord of Lords. The incarnation reveals to us that Jesus shared all the difficulties, all the challenges of human life. He was known around Nazareth simply as Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter. And for more than 30 years, he experienced all the things that are common to human life. He knew the joy and laughter that we experience. He also knew the pain and suffering and loss that is common to life. A few years ago, I read a wonderful book by Anne Rice. Anne Rice is primarily known for horror, horror lit, but she wrote a marvelous book about 10 years ago called Christ the Lord. And after her husband had died a painful death, she started re-examining her early beliefs. Her husband had led her to be an atheist, but she went back to her roots, and she had unanswered questions in her life, and she started studying Jesus. And she started studying what the world was like in the first century. At the end of that, she wrote this marvelous book, Christ the Lord, as she went back trying to picture what it would have been like for Jesus in the early years of his life, both when his family was on hiatus in Egypt and being raised in Nazareth, the part that the scriptures only give us a brief glimpse of. So it's, it's a bit of informed fiction, but she was raising the questions that we think of, like, when did Jesus know that he was the Son of God? You might say, oh, wait a minute, Jesus always knew he was the Son of God. And I want to say, really? When Jesus was in diapers, did he know that he was the Son of God? Did he have some kind of intellectual capacity that infants do not have? It doesn't seem right. When did Jesus first discover that God answered his prayers in miraculous ways? Was it with the first of the miraculous signs that we read about in the Gospels? Was there some discovery before that? What gave him the courage to step forward in that moment? I don't know. What was it like when Jesus had the first discussion with his own brothers and said, I know that Joseph's your dad, and he's a great guy, and he raised me, and I love him like my dad, but I'm actually the son of God. We don't know. And she was trying to envision a whole bunch of those questions and really kind of fleshing out the curious, wonderful, perhaps quirky youth of Jesus as the Son of God. Because in that sense, he was not like the rest of us. We don't have that same identity. What I love in her book is what she does at the end. She gets to a conclusion and she talks about how studying Jesus led her from being an atheist to embrace faith in Christ and brought her back in older years to begin to explore the church. Max Lucado wonders if Jesus acted differently when he saw a lamb being slaughtered. When did he put two and two together and realize that all the sacrifices would ultimately culminate with his own story? Did he wince a little bit when he began to see the sacrifices or hear the lamb bleeding? What did he think when he saw the blood of the lamb being drained out and as he thought ahead to what was lying in his future. All this leads, leads us to realize that Jesus wasn't just playing a part, that Jesus was a man, he was a human being. Fifth, when we say that we acknowledge Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, it also means acknowledging Jesus' death, death and resurrection. 
so that Jesus didn't just die as an example of how far love can stretch. He died as our substitute, taking our sins to the cross because we couldn't make up for them or satisfy the demand of true righteous living. So he was killed in a brutal fashion and placed in a tomb without water, without medical attention, pronounced dead by professional executioners, all in front of a mixed group of witnesses that included diehard believers, his mother, skeptics, enemies, and Roman officials. And just as Jesus died bodily on that cross, he rose bodily by the power of God on the third day at the beginning of his third day in that tomb. His resurrection demonstrated the accomplishment of God's grace on our behalf and the power of God to free us from all that holds us back. When you and I place our trust in Jesus as God's solution to our sin problem, to your sin problem, to my sin problem, your sins fly to that cross and his redemptive grace covers you forevermore. And he changes us. So the first challenge is to hold truth and love in balance. We need both. Love is good. Love is wonderful, but love is anchored by truth. The second challenge is don't let others redefine Jesus. And that attempt happens again and again in every age. Here's the third challenge that John delivered. Watch out for those who run ahead of Jesus. Watch out for those who run ahead of the teaching of the apostles. He wrote about it this way. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the, te in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. That popping is coming from my mic, so I'm going to try and be still and not move, because when I move, that's causing that to happen, all right? I'd like to walk around, but I'm going to stay right here. For now. Verse 8 tells us that Christians can become deceived or lose their focus. John was not arguing here that a person who has Christ will lose their salvation. He is instead arguing that we can take ourselves off the path that God rewards and blesses if we who are already Christ believers begin to move away from some of these core central beliefs and we, we will reap the rewards of abandoning them. Verse 9 tells us to beware of those who run ahead of the teaching of Christ. Sometimes these teachers claim to have elite knowledge that went beyond the gospel. That sounds attractive, doesn't it? Wouldn't you like to be among the elite? You're, you're going to be in the in crowd. And so the person would say, you can be a part of this in crowd if you'll just abandon what you've already heard, attach yourself to my group. Oh, and usually there was a price tag so that they got wealthy in the process of gathering this elite group. Sometimes the claim today is to become progressive and to leave behind the old doctrines of the gospel. When someone tells you that they are a progressive Christian, do not attack but ask, what does that mean to you? That word means different things to different people. It often, but not always, means that they have abandoned something that they were taught in the past. The question is, were they abandoning something that was a false doctrine, 
Or are they abandoning something that was central to the core of Christianity? That word today is used in a couple of different ways among Christians. And sometimes people who describe themselves as progressive, meaning they're leaving the old teachings. That's a concern. It should be a concern to anybody. There are people who use that term progressive to mean, no, we just want to be a part of a new way of doing things, but we're still anchored to the old faith. For that reason, I do not use that word to describe my own faith. I am not a progressive Christian. I don't want to be a pro progressive Christian. I want to be an old-fashioned, historic Christian who happens to buy into the fact that every so often we need new strategies, we need new ways of doing things, we need new methods that reinvigorate the old methods or replace them. The methods are things that we come up with. The historic beliefs of the church came from the apostles. Does that make sense? I see some heads that are nodding. You're with me. We're not attacking the, the concept of progressive. We are warning about the way that it is sometimes used in our culture today. I want to be a Christian who identifies with the old while we embrace the best of new expressions, new styles, new strategies, because we need them in a changing age. Yet, let's be careful about our obsession with the new in this age that we live in. There are new styles, new strategies that we must consider from time to time, but the gospel itself will never change. This is what John is arguing for. He was arguing for people who are at the end of the first century going into the second century, and he was arguing for you and me today that we hold on to the core of what gave life to the early church while we consider freshly new ways of describing it, celebrating it, and worshiping so long as we don't abandon all that that is anchored to truth. You with me? So here's the big idea. Truth and love together will lead people in every age to fully acknowledge Jesus. Let me add two words to that. Without apology. Without apology. Truth and love together will lead people in every age to embrace the theology of the New Testament. Truth and love together will lead people in every age to embrace the teaching of the apostles and to make sure that our teaching is tied to theirs. We can worship in new ways and we can lead with new strategies, but let's be fundamentally ancient in our beliefs. Then we can have confidence that the Jesus we believe in today is not a Jesus who's been redefined, and that we have leaders who've not run ahead of the apostles, but we're walking with them hand in hand. It fits our vision. We are people who are being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus, and we can only do that as we are anchored to the truth the apostles taught. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that you give us to celebrate truth and love. Give us the ability as we go through our, our daily walk this week, at work, at home, in the school, wherever we are, to hold dearly to our beliefs and, and to let them be fed and grow as we look into your word during the week. And give us the opportunity to love deeply knowing that our love is shaped by our faith. And we ask that we would do this in the power and in the honor of Jesus' name. Thank you, God.
Let me call on our uh, ushers.